0: Basic Income Podcast, I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One of the core findings of UBI trials that we've had in the U.S., Canada, and, and abroad is that health outcomes improve pretty much across the board. And one of the areas where we can see the most dramatic results in cash transfer programs are in families with young children, because so much depends on their early developmental environment.
1: Now, we often think about cash transfers going to kids between the ages of zero and however old, But you can actually start earlier than that by giving cash to women who are pregnant and seeing what sort of impact that has. And in fact, there's an organization in San Francisco that is exploring specifically that. Expecting Justice is an initiative of the San Francisco Department of Public Health. And I had a chance to sit down with Expecting Justice Director Zaya Malawa to talk about this program. So here's Jim's conversation with Zaya Malawa. Zaya, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
2: Oh, it's really my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Now, you lead Expecting Justice, which is an initiative of the San Francisco Department of Public Health that aims to reduce racial disparities in birth outcomes. What's the motivation for this work, and what sort of approaches do you take to achieve this goal?
2: Thank you for asking. So, um, the motivation behind expecting justice is really trying to um, understand that if even if we were to be effective in reducing rates of preterm birth in the city, if we don't address the specific racial disparities, it's likely that some of the most marginalized populations will be left behind by any innovations. And so, you know, for instance, here in California, we have one of the lowest rates of maternal mortality overall, but the disparity between white women um, and their rates of maternal mortality in black women is nearly uh, four times and so it's really important that we don't just look at the overall condition and improving it for all people which I definitely believe in but also really recognizing who gets left behind by our standard interventions and then really trying to hone in on what we can do to make sure that everybody benefits from the um, opportunities in this Bay Area uh, County so that's kind of the motivation and our approach is really um, trying to think about how racism is impacting this population and also really just trying to recognize that there's nothing inherent in having black skin that would lead to having an adverse birth outcome, but rather the situations that one finds themselves in because of our society's feelings about your black skin that is the problem. So we're really trying to approach this issue instead of trying to change birthing people themselves, we're trying to change the environment around birthing people so that they have the opportunities to be as healthy as possible and have the most beautiful birth possible. And so we're really trying to focus in on environments, systems change, policy as our intervention to address this disparity.
1: Well, that sounds like some both very important and very challenging work to take on. Now, you're currently exploring launching a program that would provide unconditional cash to some pregnant mothers in San Francisco. Can you just generally tell us what this program is, what it would do?
2: Yeah, so um, in San Francisco, um, the two groups with the highest rates of adverse birth outcomes are uh, black birthing people and Pacific Islander birthing people. And so we um, focus, at Expecting Justice, we focus like a laser on those two populations um, because the other populations are all within a percentage and a half of one another in terms of their birthing rates. Pacific Islander women tend to have preterm birth um, at a rate of one and a half times that of white women, um, and black women are around uh, a little more than two times as often do they have a premature birth when compared to white women. Uh, so we're focusing really carefully on those groups. And, you know, in general, we are really um, trying to think about what are some of the root causes of the stress that these groups feel that then lead to a premature birth. Um, and it was not lost on us that the median salary for a black family in San Francisco is only $30,000. And you compare that to the median um, income for white families, which is over $100,000. When you think about what it takes to live in the city, you quickly recognize that $30,000 can barely meet your most basic needs. And that's not because the black population is unusually lazy or incapable, but rather it's the legacy of long-term policies that have deprived um, that population from being able to build wealth and participate in the robust Bay Area economy. Um, and Pacific Islander families often find themselves in the same situation here in San Francisco. And so it makes perfect sense to us that if we want to address the stress that these communities are facing so that they can have healthier pregnancies and births, we need to address their financial stress. And I personally realized that if this community or the median member of this community has figured out how to live in the city on $30,000 a year, they don't need more financial counseling. They don't need more handholding in terms of how to be more careful with their dollars. What they need is cash, and they need less racism in our hiring and firing practices in this city so that they can have the opportunity to take the advantage of this very robust San Francisco economy like almost every other group has. And so what we are proposing is a pilot project uh, that would really reach 100 Black and Pacific Islander birthing people uh, with a monthly stipend um, that would supplement their incomes for the duration of their pregnancy. And then, because we are working in collaboration with a number of other agencies um, in San Francisco, we're really hoping that we will be able to continue with a cash stipend monthly after the baby is born from a new funding stream um, until the child enters kindergarten as a long-term opportunity for families to experience financial security, and then we're curious. What does that do? What does that do for children and their well-being? What does that do for mothers and their birthing practices and their ability to have a healthy pregnancy? And so uh, this is a feasibility pilot. Uh, Reaching 100 birthing people is not going to be um, an adequate number of participants to really understand if it makes a difference on preterm birth, but it will help us understand uh, how you actually get something like this done because nothing like this has ever been done in this country, and it will help us understand uh, what may or may not work, and we can kind of look at trends of birth outcomes. If this pilot proves to be successful, what we're hoping to do, in addition to institutionalizing it in San Francisco, we're hoping to spread it to Fresno and Oakland, um, a a larger scale pilot that would be adequately powered to be able to determine if an intervention like this can adequately reduce uh, disparities in preterm birth and other adverse birth outcomes. So that's what we're kind of hoping to do. You know, just that. Yeah, simple (laughs) things.
1: So I, I mean, you just mentioned this would be something that hasn't been done before. And in general, when we talk about unconditional cash programs, it is quite common to get pushback due to assumptions that people have about recipients misusing funds if there aren't strings attached. There are some exceptions, though. Uh, For example, if you look at the child tax credit, that tends to have pretty broad support. People view that through with a different light than they do some of these other programs. Now, I'm curious, with your program, this is money going to expecting mothers, What sort of reactions do you find that you're getting from people?
2: I think one of the first reactions that we always hear from people is, will we be teaching financial literacy when we give this money? And what I think that that speaks to is a widely held... um, misconception that the reason why people are poor in this country is because they are irresponsible with money. Um, And despite the fact that there is abundant research that shows that that is not the case, um, and then also for any working people in this country at this point, I'm sure we can identify some of the structural barriers that makes it hard for even middle class people to feel economically comfortable in this country at this point. Certainly in San Francisco, that's the case. And yet despite that, there is a persistent misconception that um, poor people, are poor because um, they are undisciplined and don't know how to handle money. And while I recognize that, in particular, black people historically have been alienated from major economic institutions in this country, it doesn't mean that they don't know how to prioritize themselves and their families and the urgent needs that their family needs in order to be successful. Like, that is, you know, not a foreign concept for people who have been living um, in this world of economic alienation for centuries, right? And so that's one of the most immediate pushbacks is that people make the assumption that we need to teach people how to spend the money and so we're often trying to present some of the research uh, that's been done um, with EIT's earned income tax credit programs um, and also um, unconditional cash transfer programs that have been done in other parts of the world you know to show that poor families working families use this money to improve their condition and to take care of their families um, I think that there's also a lot of concern about the idea that we are targeting this and that we're not using a universal um, approach. A lot of people wonder why we're not addressing all low-income people. Um, and the simple answer to that is really that we're using an equity lens. And it's funny because in San Francisco, equity is a buzzword that people love to use. And I think that almost every major institution in the city has a mission statement that includes that word equity. But I don't think that people often think about what that actually looks like on the ground. and so. We are using an equity lens, which means to me that we may have to make a disproportionate investment in groups that have been historically marginalized if we want to see equal outcomes. And it's not to say that all poor families are not deserving because they certainly are, but not all poor families are having adverse birth outcomes. And so we are using an equity approach to really target our limited resources towards the families that have the most catching up to do because they have been the most historically deprived and because of the ways in which the stress is manifesting in their particular body. So those, I think, are the most common pushback that we get.
1: So you're working on this program. Where is it at and what are the next steps?
2: Yeah. So right now, um, as I'm sure is the case with most um, cash transfer programs, we're really in the fundraising phase. Uh, We have been applying for grants like Mad Women, um, but also really reaching out to local foundations and philanthropists um, to see who can support us with this. Um, I think that uh, we are experiencing some of the benefits of some prior work that's been happening in this country, obviously the Stockton program, what's happening in Mississippi right now. Um, but also, you know, some of the larger studies in Finland has been really present in the media lately. And so I think it makes our work a little bit easier in terms of fundraising, but it still isn't easy because it's a relatively unproven um, intervention. And so I think it makes a lot of foundations and other funders pretty nervous. So that's exactly where we are and then also um, the next step or the simultaneous step is that it's really important to us that our pilot is co-designed with the uh, potential recipients of this intervention Um, because we recognize that as academics we bring a lot of valuable knowledge to this um, but we also recognize that women who have the lived experience of racial discrimination um, also have some very important knowledge that we would need to understand and so we really want to partner uh, with People from this community to understand how to make this pilot the most successful and beneficial for them, and so we're going to be working on convening focus groups in our target communities to kind of understand questions like, um, how much money do you need a month? Uh, what kinds of unmet financial needs do you have? Uh, what is your emotional experience when you have unmet financial needs? And also, you know, who should qualify for this program? Because I think that if we're exclusively targeting people who have a median salary of thirty thousand or less we might actually be missing out on a really important part of segment of this population that is too um, low income to be able to thrive in San Francisco but earns just enough to not be able to benefit from some of the entitlement programs like CalFresh and welfare and so we need community members to kind of help us figure out where that cutoff should be in order for us to have an effective pilot we're also curious about things like what is the best way for you to get the money do you want a check do you want a gift card or none of the above Uh, we've been thinking a lot about when you're dealing in a community that has an extraordinarily low income a mother might feel a lot of pressure in terms of deciding like does she support her little nieces with this does she support herself or maybe like a mother's mother might take the decision out of her hands if the mother's mother has access and decide for her and so how do we let birthing people be in control of their dollars Um, we need to understand all of these things from community residents so that we can make sure the program is beneficial for them and the only way to do that is to power share with them and find out from them and have them help us make these decisions.
1: So it seems like a super exciting program. If there are people out there who want to help out, are there ways to do that?
2: Absolutely. I think that the ways in which um, we're looking for help, so obviously if you have money and you believe in this, which I think everybody should, um, then we definitely would love for people to get in touch with us um, to help us figure out how we can fund this. Uh, But I think that also if you are a black or Pacific Islander community member of San Francisco um, and you're interested in helping us convene focus groups or adding your perspective, uh, we would also love to hear from those people or if you are a community based organization, Um, that primarily serves that population, we would love to partner with you first in this um, formative phase of planning phase of trying to understand and then also in the phase where we're implementing um, so that we can adequately reach that population. Uh, So my email address is z like zebra, E-A dot M-A-L-A-W-A at S-F-D-P-H dot org. That's San Francisco Department of Public Health org. So people can send me an email, please, um, if you want to be involved in this. And for right now, I really ask people who are San Francisco focused to reach out, um, because that's our capacity right now, recognizing that in the future, we hope to spread to the larger Bay Area and potentially Fresno. Uh, but we don't have that capacity just yet, because we're kind of a tiny team.
1: All right, Zaya, those were all the questions I had. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
2: One thing that I think is really important to kind of talk about is that uh, very often when we are looking at health disparities in particular, um, we often think of individual level interventions and individual level risks. So that I mean like in my issue around birth outcomes, very often it comes down to an issue of, oh, well was the mother eating healthy while she was pregnant? Um, Did she get prenatal care? And I think that it's really important, especially for the basic income community, um, to A, recognize the importance of making a connection between income and health outcomes and to start to partner with the health community so that they can help healthcare providers understand structural level risk and how that works You know, If mothers are not eating healthy, it's important to understand that it is very difficult to eat healthy when you don't have an adequate income, when you live in a neighborhood where it's not safe to walk around, where you live in a neighborhood that is a food desert. And having financial resources is what allows you to mitigate some of those individual level risks. So I would ask the basic income community to really start to interface with the public health community and help people start to understand some of these very entrenched social disparities that we have in this country through a structural lens. because I think that's how we really can start to get traction on both issues of income inequality, but also health disparities.
1: All right. Zaya, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
2: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Jim Pugh and Zaya Malawa on the Basic Income Podcast. I feel that if we could get this this finding that cash transfers help low-income families, especially in all families, uh, during those first years, and that it has a big impact on child health, that could really change the narrative around basic income. I feel like cash transfers can feel sort of cold and impersonal. But if you can link it to babies that are happier and healthier, like everyone likes that. That makes everyone feel good.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that this is... And I would say this is a particular case of a broader area of potential impact around health. I mean, we have already... A pretty substantial amount of evidence showing that unconditional cash transfers do benefit health. A lot of it's on mental health, but there's there's been physical health outcomes found as well. And I, th- I think we talk about this as, as a general positive, but actually being able to really dig in here and start to better understand what's going on, start to potentially quantify how much difference this is actually making. And I, I mean, I think I think there's such incredible potential there both because of the allyship that could come out of the UBI space and the health space, but also, I mean, there's a pretty strong economic and financial case to be made if you can show that basic income and cash transfers like this are improving health outcomes because of how expensive that is, both at the individual level and at the societal level. So being able to say, hey, we're going to be able to save X amount of money every year if we can use these cash transfers as a preventative mechanism, that's a pretty strong argument.
0: Yeah. And remember, we talked to one elected official in Canada who thought basic income would pay for itself. Just because you save on on healthcare costs and and any number of costs. And on that point about allyship that you made, there are people, you know, probably more people than basic income certainly for whom healthcare is their their galvanizing issue. And it made me think about how we often think about it, the basic income constituency as being this sort of mix of like liberals, libertarians, you know, some other random folks, techies. Um, but maybe a better way to think about it is you know public health people. Maybe we could bring in public education because there have been similar findings around that. And you know think about more around what does basic income improve and who could be brought into that conversation?:
1: Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that stood out to me from the conversation is how much this specific case is a concrete example of the impact of our racialized systems. So Zaya didn't say it outright, but even when you control for income, you you do see this disparity between white families and black families as far as what are the rates of premature births. And so this does challenge some of our ideas about what people need in different situations because often we do think of it just being an economic question. How much do people have? Let's make sure they have enough. But this is a clear example where where there is a a racial component to it. And so it it seems like this is a situation where the the concept of quote-unquote targeted universality may really apply, which is the idea rather than being universal in what you're providing, being universal in what your goals are. And so saying, okay, our goal is we should be cutting down premature births to X amount for everyone and given that, it does absolutely make sense to focus more on specific ethnic groups when designing a program like this.
0: Yeah. I think she had a, a really good line about about that, that exact point that the color of your skin does not affect your, your birth outcomes, You know, if you're premature or, or have any issues. But society's feelings about the color of your skin absolutely does. And we want to remind our listeners that if they want to support this very exciting cash transfer program in its early stages, please get in touch with Zaya at zea.mallawa at sfdph.org. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. And reach out to support either financially or otherwise.
1: All right. That'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. And if you like what you hear, please do make sure to rate and review us on a podcast service of your choice. And please share with your friends. We're always looking to bring new people into the conversation. We'll talk to you next time.